All right, welcome to Interrogatories, an MBA podcast. My guest today is Gregory Gifford, a partner in the law firm of Rubin, Glickman, Steinberg, and Gifford PC. Greg's been a member of the firm since 1984. For those of you keeping track at home, yes, that is the same year I was born. So he's been doing this a long time. Uh, he's a past president of the Montgomery Bar Association Trial Lawyers Section and currently chairs the Unauthorized Practice of Law Committee in the MBA. Greg, thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks. I appreciate it. So you're one of our first guests. I appreciate you uh, being volunteered by somebody else and then showing up anyway. Now, you have a little bit of a background in radio, it sounds like. Yeah, we've done, we did uh, Legally Speaking on WNPV 1440 for well over 20 years. So I uh, was on the radio program fairly regularly and um, basically talking about legal topics and, and basically answering any legal questions that any of our callers had. This will not be as classy a show. <laughs> I mean, it would be better, right? Exactly, exactly. And it's a much more casual program, not exactly the Terry Gross of legal podcast. So warning ahead of time. That's, well, like I said, it's, it's, they're, they're great topics, and like I, I think it's a great idea what we're doing, and some people may actually learn something. Hopefully. Not me, but, you know, hopefully somebody. Uh, but, but, you know, we both do criminal law, but you do some other stuff too, right? Personal injury, municipal law. Yes, I'm, uh, I do probably about 50% of my practice is, is um, personal injury, about 40% is criminal defense, and 10% is municipal law and miscellaneous. So personal injury and criminal, I kind of get that combination, a lot of people in that, those two worlds. How did you end up in municipal law? Well, that was just actually by sheer um, accident. It was about 23, 24 years, whatever, 22, 23 years ago, Judge Del Ritchie was going to the bench, and I had been involved you know, in the local area, born and raised in this area, and he had asked me to uh, apply in, in for the position at the Lansdale Zoning Hearing Board as their solicitor. And, um, and actually, at the time, I hadn't done that much zoning work, but he was kind enough to say, I'll teach you everything you need to know about zoning work. I put my name in and got the position and then had the luck that uh, Judge Delbert, did exactly what he said. He literally taught me everything you needed to know about zoning law and, or where to find the answer if I couldn't find it. And from that, I ended up becoming a solicitor of Lansdale Zoning Hearing Board, Marlboro Township Zoning Hearing Board, Skipback Township Zoning Hearing Board. I've done conflict work for several other municipalities and then eventually became the borough solicitor of North Wales Borough, where I sat as a borough councilman for many years. And are you still in North Wales? Yep, still in North Wales and all those other solicitorships. So even though it's only 10%, uh, it probably takes 20% of my time, but it's 10% of my revenue in the firm. I gotcha. Now, it looks like you also serve as the chair of the MDT team of the Montgomery County Office of Children and Youth. Are you still doing that? Yeah, we don't have as many meetings. Um, it, it's a multidisciplinary team of children and youth, and we used to meet monthly, but then they changed that to just serious cases or cases, past cases that, that open up again and need to be reviewed. Uh, so yes, I am technically still the chair of that committee. But it sounds like it only meets as needed. Now it's as needed. We used to meet every month and review cases for children and youth, and I did that for almost 20 years. And for the last um, two years now, it's just as needed. But you don't do any dependency law? Is that because you're all on the committee? Correct, because that's why I don't do MCAP work or dependency work or anything that would be a conflict of interest for MDT, because I, I basically am on a board with um, 
you know, doctors um, who are psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, chief of police, uh, social workers, nurses, um, um, ministers, like a lot of very um, a true multidisciplinary team that review cases and they need to keep it completely non-conflict with regard to in case we have an issue that we may be at odds with any other organization in Montgomery County, we need to be independent. Yeah, that makes sense. And of course, the appearance of impropriety too. Yes. Let me ask you about this. Somebody told me that you are an expert in glass bottles. I am. I uh, started actually collecting as a 12-year-old. I was a 12-year-old that uh, first started uh, uh, digging up these old glass bottles that had names embossed on them, and I thought they were very interesting. And I'd always had a keen interest in history, and they'd be have local doctors' names on it or local pharmacy names on them, and it greatly interested me as to where these bottles came from, how old they were, and that started the passion. And, and believe it or not, back in the 70s, bottle collecting was the third largest and fastest growing hobby in the United States of America. And there were clubs everywhere. You know, no matter, I mean, every town had a bottle club, and the club I joined and started going to at the age of 14. I'd actually get a ride from a family member to the meetings once a month, and there would be uh, collectors from, you know, all, pretty much our region, the Montgomery Bucks region, and um, and there were probably about 80 to 100 members in the club back then. It was a huge growing hobby, and that sparked my interest, and here I am, uh, almost 50 years later, still collecting, but you know, now I have an expertise in early American glass. We're going to get to early American glass in a second, but just to clarify, when you were a kid, your parents said, hey, why don't you go out back and play with some broken glass? Because that sounds like a CYS case waiting to happen. Yeah, well, believe it or not, what it was is, no, we would go over to the, the local golf course, which, is, uh, which was in Montgomeryville at the time, and we dig up these old bottles because we, we used to go in, and look in the woods, find golf balls, sell them to the golfers, make enough money to play miniature golf in the afternoon. And that's what you did as a kid in summer, and you had fun, and I became a very good miniature golfer. Until one day when looking for golf balls in the woods, we came across this old farm dump, uh, and um, there was a bottle st halfway sticking out of the ground, and I dug it up and started digging more bottles and realized there were a lot of bottles buried under the ground, and that's how it became a uh, an interest of mine. And, and believe it or not, the uh, the junior high I went to actually had the the uh, woodworking shop teacher was a bottle collector, and he had a club right there in the junior high. So this is a bunch of junior high schoolers all gathering together collecting glass. Yeah, in addition to the to the to the Delaware Valley Bottle Club, which was adults probably 80 to 100 adults from the Bucks Montgomery County area. So when you got into this, obviously you started a little collection, but now you're you know, a grown man, kids, spouse. Is your house full of glass? What's the setup? Is there a shed that's like covered in glass and miscellaneous items? There's actually a bottle room. And it's uh, the bottle room is uh, it's a split basement and half the basement uh, when we purchased this particular home the couple that uh, originally bought the home and had a, it was uh, bicycles, uh, a, a workout room with weights and everything. And that room became the bottle room and the family history room because I'm also the family historian. So I have cases with, um, you know, early family Bibles, um, Civil War pictures of great-great-grandfathers. So it's the, both the history room and the bottle room. 
And uh, literally, there are two walls that are complete with shelves that have bottles dating from the 1600s all the way through into the early 1900s. Do you think you can send us a picture to put in the show notes? Sure, I absolutely can. Okay, okay great. great. So, so it sounds like it sounds there's like also there's a little also bit of convergence, convergence between the glass, glass and, the and the family history, history back in back the early, in the early American, American Revolutionary, Revolutionary times. Oh, absolutely. Are you, are you able to track that far back? Yeah, I am. Actually, uh, just recently, uh, there is a particular bottle that um, about 10 years ago, I got it, and, um, and it was a very rare bottle. It was unknown at the time from about the 1830s from the Philadelphia region. And what was interesting about it, it was um, uh, Elizabeth, it was E, the initial E, and then L-Y-E, Eli. And um, at the time, I thought it was a last name, but it was actually, it wasn't E-L-Y-E, it was E and the L-Y-E. And one of my good friends who's a computer expert and, and, and he, a master researcher, and we've been collecting since, uh, and digging together since I was 13 and he was 12, um, actually did the research and found it. And it was an Elizabeth Lye, who was a woman whose husband had passed away and she sold botanical medicines in Philadelphia in the 1830s, 18, late 20s, early 30s. And it was rare in Philadelphia to be a woman and running a business um, in such, you know, a long time ago and obviously the 1820s and 30s in Philadelphia. Or anywhere, really. Or anywhere. So it really fascinated me that she had this botanical medicine business. Well, come ahead, actually, it was almost 15 years ago. Come ahead 15 years, there's a lot more research out there. And a second bottle was found with from this Elizabeth Lye, real early uh, bottle. And I managed to learn about it and wanted to purchase it from the guy who dug it because of the fact that I, I love this real early American stuff. Well, in doing the research 15 years later, as it turns out, Elizabeth Lye was my great, great, great aunt. Wow. And in doing the research, I found out her maiden name was Gifford, and uh, she married a Lye who then passed away, and she took over the business, and she was my great, great, great grandfather's sister. So yes, it's amazing how history can connect. When did you start becoming the family historian? Was somebody the historian before you? Is this a position that other people in your family recognize, or is this just a thing you say and your wife rolls her eyes? Uh, it's both. Everybody in the family recognizes it. when they come over, they all want to, first thing they want to do is go down into the, uh, into the basement, into the bottle room to see all of the different um, family heirlooms and, uh, and all the different photographs. And I mean, you name it, I have a lot of the family history. And uh, so they, they all want to come down and see that. But it also, if, if you were to go down into my basement and start talking bottles, my wife rolls her eyes and will come down and rescue you within a half an hour to an hour. So she knows uh, she's got a routine. Yes, she knows I can bore. I mean, I, I am so uh, into the hobby and I know so much about the hobby, early glassmakers, early doctors or inventions or products that literally most people's eyes will glaze over unless you're really into history. You might say they get covered in glass. Yes, they get covered in glass. Well said, Josh. Oh, yeah. A little dad humor for you there. <laughs> That's the kind of quality content we're hoping for on this podcast. So have you been to the Corning Museum of Glass like a million times, or is that just so boring to you that you don't even go? Oh, I've been there a couple times, and they do have it online now, too. Uh, and they have a brilliant glass collection. And are you doing any online exhibitions for your family? 
No, I really don't. That's something I hope to do when, one day when I have time. Um, I also had a one of my dad's first cousins who was a real researcher as well, and fortunately she shared all of the research she had with me as well in the family. So I got a, a, a whole new section of family history that eventually I'll, I'll basically catalog and publish. And where do you do this? Are you using Ancestry.com or something similar or just a big book in your basement? All of the above. Which site do you prefer? Believe it or not, there's, there's um, when I was over in, in Ireland doing the research on my ancestry over in Ireland, I would actually, you, you can't get it on Ancestry.com. Well, actually, you're starting to get more and more on there, which is great. Um, you actually had to go to the early churches and, and view their records. Um, more and more of that is getting online and on Ancestry.com um, that it's been actually very helpful. So you went to Ireland to do family research? Yeah, we were at a family trip, and part of it was I wanted to um, go to the early towns that uh, two of my relatives uh, both left during the potato famine, and I uh, was able to go to the churches, uh, find one of the one of my relatives' gravestones from the 1840s, and it was it was an interesting uh, research project. So one side of your family came over here pre-revolution. It sounds like. Yes, the Gifford the Giffords came over in pre-revolution, and um, and but then there's a, another side on my on my dad's side that came over uh, mostly during uh, during the potato famine. And you were able to track them down to a church and do research there. Well, that's pretty cool. As uh, someone that's family came over early 1900s, that's pretty much as far back as we can go here, without traveling over to Russia. Yeah, there's a mate. Well, that's the and that's where I run it. Like right now, um, uh, Lithuania uh, doesn't have a lot of information on my mom's side. There's a, a Lithuanian branch, but I've not been able to do that much research on that. Like it only goes back so far. But uh, and like I said, eventually there'll be more coming out, and um, I'll be able to do more research on that branch. And have you been able to really dig in during quarantine? Yes, way back early, early quarantine, I had a lot more time and 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 wrote some. Uh, articles, uh, I've yet to do it because unfortunately uh, I had the time, I did a lot of writing, but then it was a matter of, okay, we're starting to open up a little bit in June and uh, everything was way behind. So I have not gotten back to that yet, but hopefully uh, I'll find time sometime this spring, or fall, uh, this spring or summer. Still catching up from June, it sounds like, and from the, from the shutdown like the rest of us. Yes. And is your office fully back in operation in person? Yes, we're fully back in operation in person. Uh, we have um, all of our protocols in place. I mean, it, it was nice. We had a, uh, a test case. We had a staff person that was here probably two days with the uh, with COVID, and um, there were no other cases. He was then diagnosed and had COVID and was out. And so it was nice to see. And then everyone who was worked on the same floor as her was tested, and no one else had had. Uh, contracted COVID, so protocols do work. If you if you distance, wash your hands, wear your masks, it wears an example of having someone for two days on a floor in contact, I mean, not in contact, but in, in um, you know, not direct vicinity with other employees and it was not contracted by anyone else. So, um, so protocols do work. And for your protocols, have you installed anything in the office? Yeah, yeah, we have in all of our, um, uh, any of our rooms, we only meet clients in one of our four conference rooms, which all have plexiglass. 
Um, obviously, mask wearing is mandatory. Everything's clean before and after every client. Uh, and um, it's we have a lot of safety protocols in place, and they're working. So I want to talk to you a little bit more about quarantine, COVID, and the practice of law. You're a former chair of the Trial Lawyers Association. What's your prediction? When are we having jury trials in Montgomery County again? I'd say at the earliest, probably the fall. I think that's pretty uh, optimistic, and that would be okay. What's your prediction for the criminal side? Criminal side, they're going to have to start doing more this summer. So I think come July, we may see, uh, because eventually there's going to be testing the Supreme Court's ruling to suspend uh, Rule 600. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, whether or not the court is going to put a lot more judges in criminal to try and clean up the backlog for criminal trials. I was speaking to a family law attorney, and I don't do any family law because I don't hate myself that much. And she was saying that it's pretty much gung-ho. Everything's full speed ahead in family law, and everyone kind of knows that at some point the criminal bench is going to say, okay, that's enough family law. Everyone's coming to criminal. Yeah, and that's the thought. Yeah, and I, I think that's probably a good prediction. And I don't know about you, but I'm thinking they're going to be giving away the courthouse this summer. Uh, in terms of plea bargains, but we'll see. Right, and I and I think there's going to be a lot of any cases that make sense they will resolve. It's it's the, the the difficult part sometimes is there were a lot of newer assistant district attorneys, and I think they had to get a comfort level with being able to resolve cases without worrying about uh, someone in in one of the upper offices giving them you know grief about it. So I think until the comfort level was throughout the assistant district attorney's uh, rank there was not going to be a lot of resolutions. And you think we'll see something different once we're back, quote-unquote, open? I do, and I, I, think, I think basically the judges have, have basically um, pushed the district attorney's office to at least start bringing some of these cases in front of them so they can get to some resolutions. So um, it's a slow process, but it's moving. Yeah, I agree. Now, are you practicing in other counties? Yeah, I practice in basically just Montgomery and Bucks for the most part. Well, Bucks has pretty much been back since, what, May? They opened up and said, what, COVID? Yep, uh, Bucks was, like I said, I was one of the few that uh, when they were wide open in March and April still, and there, I had hearings up there, I'd be in a courtroom sometimes with uh, 50, 60 people. But at the time, I wore my mask and I stayed up to the right corner of and, and I was, people were looking at me a little strangely, but I was taking it, you know, the Montgomery County seriousness and, and, uh, and then Bucks, of course, then put all the protocols in place shortly thereafter. Have you had to try any cases yet? No, I have not. Yeah, same. I've had a couple of cases that seemed like they were going to go, but Chester and Lancaster are doing juries, but they can only do one or two a month in the whole county. So a lot of free continuances. Yes, Absolutely. During and I have a lot of clients who are very happy with those continuances. Exactly. Uh, just hanging out. Nobody's incarcerated. And if they're not incarcerated, let's just kick that can. Yep. During your quarantine, what would you say was your uh, silliest quarantine purchase by you or your family? That's a good question. Um, silliest quarantine purchase. You'd have to ask my wife that. Sorry, Josh. She did all the... I mean, I know she probably had a lot and they did a lot more online shopping, but... Uh, I couldn't really answer that question. Nothing crazy showed up on the dining room table with you thinking, what the hell is this? 
No, because I was always smart enough as a husband not to ask, don't question, whatever it is, it was fine. Look at this. See, we're getting all kinds of advice on this podcast. Yes. I'm going to hit you with some uh, somewhat lightning round questions. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Treat everyone as you want to be treated. Classic, but good advice. I live by it, so that's why it was an easy answer. What is something you hate, but you wish you loved? Something I could hate that I wish I loved. Well, actually, you know what? I, I, something I hate is the uh, very heavy traffic that's grown in this area now that we're past COVID. But I wish I loved it because it means that we're getting back to normal again. And hey, you have more time for your podcasts and your audiobooks. Yes, absolutely. Right. And that, that's the, that has been one of the good things. And what are you listening to, podcast or audiobook-wise? Uh, believe it or not, uh, actually, I have a son who uh, who works for Vanguard, and he has sent me uh, many podcasts on different. A lot of the different investors or financial people out there, because it's been interesting hearing the many takes on, um, you know, where the economy's going and and uh, how quickly will we get back to normal again, and what will the long term impacts been. So, um, so, uh, so I've been basically listening to a lot more of that than more of that than I've ever listened to in my life. Has that led you to be one of the people that is trying to short GameStop? No, believe it or not, it led me to being uh, more conservative because of the fact being 61, I realized that I'm not as much of a risk taker as I was when I was 41. So I went much more conservative because I'd rather lose out on a little gain than have a great loss right now. Yeah, it makes sense. Especially as you get closer to retirement, you want to have that Ready to go. Yes. Do you have any superstitions? Oh, I, yeah. I'm, I'm half Irish, so I have lots of superstitions. What's your top? My top is that never jinx yourself by bragging or talking about something that you did well or that you're good at. Because if you do, it will, you will quickly have an issue that makes you feel or realize you're not as good as you just said or as successful as you might think you are. So that's my greatest tradition. I try never to do that because being Irish, you're jinxing yourself. Do you have any work-related, like on the day of trial, you do this or that, or for your closing, you do a certain set of socks? Uh, yes, I, I, I absolutely do. I always uh, My tradition is I always try and wear a tie that will encompass the situation I'm in. I have like a, a Ben Franklin tie. I have an ancient seas tie. I have a lot of very nice ties, very beautiful silk ties that were, but they all can uh, evoke my emotions for the event I'm in. Like if I'm in a completely unknown situation I've never handled before, I'll sometimes wear my tie that has the map of the ancient seas when they were first exploring the world in an ancient seas and drawing these early maps for other explorers in the in the 14, 15, and 1600s, uh, my Ben Franklin tie and my uh, Philadelphia tie. I have a lot of different ties that, that are, uh, I have my, uh, my summer ties, my um, vacation ties, you name it, but I, I tend to have a tradition or where I'll wear a tie that matches the mood or the situation I'm in. Have you ever misread it? Worn a tie, shown up somewhere, and then been like, oh shit. No, I can honestly say I have not. Well, that's good. I was once in court with a client who misread the situation. He was wearing a shirt. It wasn't my client. It was someone else's client, uh, fortunately. And the shirt said, 
hey woman, go make me a sandwich. And the judge was a female judge, not a good shirt either way. And the attorney happened to, the person had a jacket on. And it was kind of like he took the jacket off as the judge was coming onto the bench. And the attorney happened to notice and send him out in time to go turn his shirt inside out and come back in with an inside out shirt on. Oh, wow. Fortunate for that guy. Unfortunate for those of us that were looking forward to the spectacle. What is something that people are obsessed with, but you just don't get the point of? Now, I'll give you a, a, a very mundane example. I mean, a lot of people I know are very obsessed with the car they drive. And, uh, and there has to be a particular vehicle or, say, a particular uh, statement where I'm, I don't get it. You know, you drive a car that's, that's comfortable, that you like, that works for you. And so I've never understood that. I've never needed to have a vehicle that was a status symbol. Yeah, that makes sense. As a Subaru driver, I completely disagree with you because I think anyone that doesn't drive a Subaru is an idiot. But, you know, teach their own. <laughs> exactly. That's so true. What is left on your bucket list? Probably the most, the biggest thing that's left on my bucket list is I want to travel to um, more uh, places in the United States that I've not visited. And my bucket list is to hopefully get some more travel in uh, as I retire because there's many parts of this country and a few places in Europe that I would really love to get to see. Well, that answers also my next question. What's on your list for when the country opens back up? What's your first state? Um, well, actually, what I'm hoping to do is I, I've been wanting to take my daughters uh, who um, have never been to Northern California. And, and from basically from San Francisco up to the top of California is one of the most beautiful parts of, of, of this country, probably in the world. And some of the most beautiful highways and redwood forests and stone beaches and and glass, uh, uh, glass beaches and just unbelievable sites that I was lucky to visit when I was um, in college. Nationals for wrestling were in Northern California. So, uh, and then we did some sightseeing right afterwards and I'd love to take them there. Even though I've been there once, I just think it's one of the most unbelievably beautiful parts of this world that I'd love to have, take them to see again. That sounds like more of something on their bucket list. Yeah, it is more on their bucket list, but, to, but going there with your children and enjoying it with your children is on my bucket list. Well, that sounds good to me. Last question. What is something you get wrong almost every time you do it? If I contradict my wife, I'm always wrong. So every time <laughs> I do it, I know I'm wrong. I like it. And you know what? We'll end it there. Greg, thanks for joining us. This has been fun. Uh, those looking for Greg, you can find him at Ruben Glickman Steinberg and Gifford PC. It's rgsglaw.com. Uh, Greg, thanks for being a guest here on Interrogatories, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Josh. Take care thanks. and have a great rest of the day. Thank you for listening to Interrogatories with Josh Campson. This podcast is a production of the Montgomery Bar Association in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Views expressed during the podcast are those of the participants and not their employers or the Montgomery Bar Association. No content in this podcast should be construed as legal advice. For more information, visit us at montgomerybar.org.